The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Listener discretion is advised. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, buy it. Sweet. Good day, good world. You're listening to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, we go after films outside the major categories. And for this, our last cinematic foray of season one, we stay below the thermals in the turbulent and terrific subgenre of submarine movies. In today's episode, part one of two, we tackle a film whose myth, legendary stature, and quite frankly, total runtime have only grown throughout the years. It stars the icy smooth German with a jaw so angular it could be a T-square, Jürgen Prochnow, in a panic-inducing tour de force by director Wolfgang Peterson. Take our picture later, Werner. We'll all have beards when we return. This is the one, the only masterpiece, Das Boot, the director's cut. And joining me via Zoom from the City of Angels, Los Angeles, to get specific about this film school staple is, coincidentally enough, a former film school compatriot of mine. He is a screenwriter, he's a film studio guy with a real office on a real lot, and he's my go-to person most of the time for insightful and really baritone takes on the important films I've seen, and maybe more I haven't but really pretend to. It's Steve Baumgartner. How you doing, Steve? I'm good, Josh. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. I am super excited to have you here, and the main reason, there's a few reasons. I mean, it's Das Boat, but one of the big reasons I'm excited to have you here is when I first thought about this show, when I conceived this show, when this was the tiny embryo in the belly of my mind, uh, the person I saw me sitting and doing this here with was Steve Baumgartner. So finally to have you here, I'm, I'm happy to do that. The pressure's on, man. But thank you. That's <laughs> I'm, I was really flattered to be asked, and especially for this movie, because uh, it definitely stands above uh, submarine movies as a genre, I would say. This is sort of the er U-boat movie. It, it really is. And and I, I swear to you, I said er more than once in this film. Uh, it does bring that from the gut up. So we, you, you said this is sort of the submarine film. I would go a step further and be a little bit more specific and say, I think, to me, this is the submarine film for people of a certain age, people that went to school, film school, like worked in video stores in the 90s. Like this is not just the submarine movie, but one of the movies for us. Would you say that? I, I wouldn't put myself in that us, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's got a fantastic reputation, which has endured. The other reason I'm happy to have you here is because, and I, I may have said this more than once uh, in the course of the five minutes we were talking before we got on the air, but my knowledge of film extends so far and it, it covers a certain range. Your knowledge of film extends so far and it tends to cover a range of film that I don't necessarily always know enough about. And so I'm excited to have that kind of stack of opinions come to this show. <laughs> Everybody's a Venn diagram, you know? Nobody has the exact same tastes and exposures. I'll, I'll do my best to cover things that you might not know, but please do the same for me. Uh, speaking of two parts working as a whole, normally on subgenre, 
we would do single episodes about single films. That was the intention with Das Boat for about five minutes until I really got a sense of how much there is to talk about here. And so, everybody, uh, we are splitting this discussion about Das Boat into two episodes, the one you are listening to now and the one you will listen to after now. Please make sure that you continue on with part two of this, uh, which we were probably also going to call episode nine. And uh, yeah, that's how we're going to work this. All right. So, Das Boot. Is it Das Boot or Das Boot? A friend of mine did do military time in Germany, and I believe he had it as Boot. As Boot. Or, or that's me trying to like mush the vowels together so that nobody can really call me out. Perfect. Well, you can, you can apologize to the German speakers. I'll apologize to the English speakers. I will also muddle names and, and words, and, and that's just part of the game. Let's take this film that neither of us can seem to pronounce correctly, and I think maybe the rest of the world as well, and let's set it up for the people. Das Boot, Das Boot, what are we working with here? Sure. Well, uh, Das Boot sort of started because it was a 1973 novel by Lothar Gunther Buchheim. There's one of those and names. Thanks to the DVD commentary, I think I might have gotten that right. <laughs> and he was an embedded war correspondent on a German U-boat during World War II. So you might catch a uh, character in there who is in the same situation. There were several attempts to get this movie made in Hollywood or by Hollywood. They had even brought over a director to Germany for a year and he couldn't work it out. They tried again and it didn't happen. So the project returned to West Germany. And Wolfgang Peterson, director of a few theatrical films and a lot of television movies, was ready and waiting because he was sort of, he knew that this project was happening, but he was thinking, why is this very German story being handled by the Americans? Correct me if I'm wrong. This, at least by what I can tell, this was the biggest thing he had done, German or otherwise, when this came along. As far as I can tell, yes. As far as I can tell, Uh, right. His previous stuff was not on my radar until actually I started reading up on this movie a little bit. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm in yeah, yeah. boot, excuse me. I'm in the same boot. <laughs> so Wolfgang Peterson got a hold of it and he cast an actor who he had worked with numerous times in the past, Jürgen Prochno. This was not their first time together, as I believe their fourth. The movie premiered in West Germany in September 1981. And according to Peterson, the movie cost about 20 million US dollars at the time, which back in 1981 was a big budget movie for America. Oh, sure. Um, and for Germany, it was one of the all time biggest tickets uh, as far as the budget goes. Um, a lot of that budget went to the set, which is, as you know, and people have seen it know, a painstaking recreation of the World War II U boat interior. It's accurately proportioned, all the details match the real thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but when in Munchen, you can go to Bavaria Film Studios, take their tour, and walk that set. That's oh, still an attraction there. Okay. I, well, I got to go then. Not that I needed a reason to go, but if I can, if I can walk the Das Boat set, yeah, yeah, sure. Nobody is acting in front of a green screen in this movie, which I think is really important because uh, inside the boat. Inside anyway. the. I was going to say they, <laughs> they, there are a couple yeah. of shots I would dispute that on, but yes, inside the boat, yes. And I think that really serves the authenticity of the performances. In addition to the boat itself, this movie was got more authenticity because it was shot in sequence for the most part over the course of a year or so. That, so that doesn't happen often. No, for a lot no. of reasons, but that definitely doesn't happen often. Yeah, if you see the actors not only getting hairier and being more worn down, that's built into the shooting schedule. That, that's um, why I look that way. It's built into my shooting schedule. I just get hairier and more worn down. It's purposeful, yeah, it, folks. Uh, the movie 
paid off financially. It was at the time it got the widest release in Germany of any German film and it set box office records there. But uh, there was also some controversy over whether or not the film was properly condemnatory of the German military movement mm. of the time. That's really euphemistic. I don't mean it to be. I just don't want to misspeak on exactly what the charges were. Sure. So between the popularity of the movie and the controversy, when the movie made its way to the United States in February 1982, the tagline was something like, um, the most talked about movie in Germany is about to come to America or something like that. And the movie also, I think, got a little bit of extra attention because it was the first release by Triumph Films, which was Columbia Pictures' specialty arm uh -huh. that dealt with foreign pictures, usually foreign language. And that special handling actually paid off. It did about $11 million in the States, which today comes out to $34 million, which isn't gigantic. I think like if you look at 2019, that puts it in the category of the Liam Neeson snowplow movie, for example, <laughs> which I haven't seen. I'm not dissing it. But uh, the thing that was sort of um, unique about this movie is that it was a foreign language movie in the United States that hit it big. Uh, four years earlier, there had been La Cage au Fall, mm -hmm. which did a little bit better. And there wasn't anything that really came close to Das Boot uh, for another six years when Cinema Paradiso came in. So basically, uh, this became the foreign language movie that your average American was probably most aware of in the 1980s. Strangely, I think we'll probably talk more about this later, but there are various versions of Das Boot that got released. Theatrically, I think there was both a German and an English language dubbed version. And in the United States, it was the German version that did better. Yeah, I, there was an article saying that basically, oh, we're so excited, we're going to put this movie into English, and it's going to open up this audience that would not see a foreign language movie, we're going to put it on all these screens. And as I recall, it that audience didn't show up. The people who wanted to see it went to see it in German. You know, you great. You got you to gotta see it in the original German. That's what I hear. Uh, but it did well in the United States, so well, in fact, that it was nominated for, I think it was like a half dozen Academy Awards. And not all of them were for were for sound effects editing, which seems to be what every submarine movie gets nominated for. I was what director, screenplay, cinematography, sound editing, and I think probably special effects, uh, sound effects editing gets nominated for all of them. Wins, I think, none of them. But you know, that sounds right. Yeah, but you know, I, I think it, it's nominated for a Golden Globe too. I don't think it won that as well. Which, in hindsight, seems like insane that it didn't win at least one out of the you know six or seven awards that it was nominated for. But it's an honor just to be nominated. It is an honor just to be nominated. I hope one day to lose an Academy Award as well. As you mentioned, it does. It was directed by uh, Wolfgang Peterson. Um, Wolfgang Peterson, who would go on to direct films that you may have heard of, especially in the times we've just been through, films like Outbreak. Um, um, but also Air Force One, certainly, and and a film that I am a fan of that may make it into a future season of subgenre in the line of fire. Um, stars Jürgen Prochnow. Prochnow, the, his last name is kind of like Das Boot, Das Boat. Is it Prochnow, Prochno? I believe it's Prochno. Prochno. Is Jürgen right with the umlauts? Yeah. Okay. Jürgen. So we got Jürgen Prochno, also an Air Force One alumnus and uh, the English patient and a bunch of other stuff, including, by the way, what I know and love Jürgen Prochno for the most, uh, and I want to talk about this later, Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's funny because the movies you picked were not the ones I thought of him in, and I just saw Beverly Hills Cop 2 for the first time a year ago. You might remember him from such films as Michael Mann's The Keep, yes. which is hard to see uh, and follow this movie shortly, and um, the early 90s erotic thriller with Madonna, 
Body of Evidence. Body of Evidence. Yes. Oh, um, man. I totally uh, forgot that ever existed. <laughs> well, now you have an excuse. Now I have an excuse to see it. Well, Steve, that is a lot already about a movie this sizable to take in. I am excited to get talking about this. So this seems like a good time to talk about our feature presentation. <laughs> Our feature presentation is, of course, Das Boot. Das Boot, it's really this story, and I think harrowing is the right word maybe applied here. It's the story of a German U-boat, but it's also the story of its captain, but it's also the story of a reporter that has come on board to observe and, and report and tell great stories about what's going on board. And it's a story about war, and it's a story about horror, and it's a story about boredom. This movie, Dust Boat, starts as, uh, you know, I guess all submarine movies, good good and bad submarine movies tend to do. It starts with two things. One is a sonar ping, just like that. And the other is an opening title card. I, I have yet to see, I think, a submarine movie that does not start with an opening title card. And this is no exception. The title card lets us know that we are... In France in 1941, it lets us know it's autumn. It lets us know the town is La Rochelle. And uh, the card itself, I typed while I was writing this because I wanted to make sure that we got the full story of where we are. So uh, with your permission, Steve, I'm going to read that to us now. It says, La Rochelle, France, autumn 1941, Germans' vaunted U-boat fleet, with which Hitler hoped to blockade and starve out Britain, is beginning to suffer its first major setbacks. British freighters are now sailing the Atlantic with stronger and more effective destroyer escorts, inflicting heavy losses on the U-boats. Nevertheless, the German High Command orders more and more U-boats with even younger crews into battle from their ports in occupied France. The battle for control of the Atlantic is turning against the Germans. 40,000 German sailors served on U-boats during World War II. 30,000 never returned. There's a lot in there. And as a matter of fact, when you read that, it made me think of, uh, Peterson tells a story that they had an early screening of this in Los Angeles. And when that card came up in Beverly Hills and they said 30,000 Germans died, let's just say the audience was predisposed not to be unhappy about that uh, as witnessed by the applause that happened. Yeah. The way he tells the story, they were turned around by the end of the movie. We'll see if we feel the same. Um, So out of this title card, out of this ping, we are thrown headfirst as an audience into the deep green sea. And out of this deep green sea comes what at first I thought was a whale. I should have thought differently. I know that it's a sub movie, but by golly, it looked like a beluga whale. And and here (laughs) comes the sub uh, coming right at us out of the water. We get, a, you know, we get the nice titles and all that. This is the opening title sequence. We don't need to spend time here. It's a damn boat. But what is important in the next scene is we get our first look at Mr. Jürgen Prochno, Captain Lieutenant Henrik Lehmann Willenbrock, uh, who from this point forward, I'm just going to refer to as Henrik because I can't say those other things. Where did you get that name? Because the credits just calls him something like the captain or the commandant. Did you go back to the book or? No, I think that that name actually is how he has listed on the character listing on IMDb. Captain Lieutenant Henrik Lehmann Villenbrock dash der Alte, D-E-R-A-L-T-E. So Henrik. Henrik. <laughs> Captain. We'll call him Captain. We'll call him Henrik. Same thing. He is driving in this Mercedes along the French coast at night. They are uh, heading towards the boat to head out to sea. Uh, when off to the side of the road, they are intercepted first by a single sailor who has decided to get drunk and 
pee on the car as it passes. And uh, the captain referral, that that's the bosun's mate, you know, telling everybody in the car. A few seconds later, they run into the rest of the crew who are also standing by the side of the road drunk and pissing in streams onto the Mercedes. And we get the information that this is referred to as the fireboat drill. It's a great way to uh, initiate someone uh, onto the boat, I suppose. Oh, actually, I, I missed that. I did not know that, that this was uh, a tradition. It's going to come back in another scene here in a second. And that's the, that's the only reason I really paid attention to the fireboat drill thing. Um, because the next scene we see after being peed on from the side of the road is we are dropped again, kind of head first into it's a cabaret. It's a it's a whorehouse. It's a it's a place with lots of drunk people and dancing girls and music. And this allows our captain to kind of arrive in grand style at the door. And he is flanked on both sides this time with two guests I, I think that were in the car with him previously. Yeah, you've got uh, Lieutenant Werner, who is the embedded war correspondent who's going to be going out on the captain's ship. Played by an actor uh, slash singer named uh, Herbert Gronemeyer, who is just a wonderful, we'll talk more about him later too, but just a really cool actor and has an interesting story behind him. Keep going. He does, yeah. And the other guy is, I believe, the chief engineer. One of the things why I said, how did you get these names, is because I thought the movie very intentionally doesn't give all of these names and people are defined by what their role is on the boat, which can be pretty difficult when yes. you're faced with a whole bunch of unfamiliar faces who only get so much screen time. So let's call, so let's call him chief. So we got captain, we got chief. What do we call uh, Werner? Werner? Yeah, the correspondence. There we go. That's... Sure. All right. So, so he shows up at the door. And Chief, by the way, played by Klaus Veneman, also does a wonderful turn in this film. You really have to hand this to the actors because they have a limited amount of material to work with as far as characterization. But you definitely get the feeling that they put the work in and are full-bodied people beyond what they're asked to do and say. Yeah. On most submarine movies, because it's tight quarters and it's dark and there's a bunch of people and it's a crew, it can be very difficult to keep track of who is who and who does what. There is that extra layer of this is a foreign film. And so sometimes that can make things a little difficult to track who is who and who does what. And because of the very defined performances, I think, that we see by a lot of the majors in this movie, that job is made a lot easier. Truth. Truth. So uh, they are there at the door. They show up and revelry is around them. Men are greeting the captain who is, you know, dressed to the nines in his dress uniform, including this one sailor who's trying to pull the tablecloth out from under the dishes. It's just, it's chaos. And there is a first lieutenant who arrives. So our captain gets to the bar, he orders his beer. And there is a man who feels very out of place that arrives to talk to our captain. He is, you can tell, a is the best way to say it a stick in the mud? Yeah, I mean, that's the cleanest way to say it. <laughs> right, that's the cleanest way to say it. He is the first lieutenant, uh, played by Hubertus Bench, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I know I'm not. But he is going to take the role from this point forward of our resident hardcore Nazi, I guess, on board a boat of semi and uh, agnostic Nazis for the rest of the film. Um, he has arrived to tell the captain that, hey, captain, the boat is ready. But on the way here, there was an incident and he's he's just reticent to talk about it. And <laughs> and the captain guesses, he's, they, the crew peed on you, didn't he? Yeah, they, the crew peed on me. So that's the fireboat drill. Yeah, it's nice because already the captain is uh, has a lot more definition than the other 
roles in this movie. And already you know that while he is separate from these other people, he's experienced and he's got empathy for them. And he's hanging out at the bar, by the way, with one of my favorite characters and actors in this entire movie. And this is a fellow sub-captain by the name of Thompson, played by Otto Sander. And I guess Otto makes an entrance too. He's called out from the stage. Hey, everybody, yeah. it's the it's the captain. It's Thompson coming in. And he stumbles in and there's music and everything. And somebody leans over and says, you know, it's the old guard. They're always drunk. And he lives up to it, apparently as an actor as well. He was sloshed when he did the scene, according to Wolfgang, you know, and I don't see why he would lie. I don't see why he would throw his friend under the sub. Well, he gives this wonderful speech. Uh, he steps up on stage, just three sheets to the wind, grabs the mic and says with a wink and a nod kind yeah. of a thing, you know, he says. It's like it's like enough gusto that you think that maybe he's putting this on. Yes. One of those things, if you're in on the joke, you're going to get what he's saying. Right. And the toast that he makes is a toast to our wonderful, abstaining, womanless Fuhrer who rose gloriously from apprentice painter to become the world's greatest battle strategist. And you have an inkling that he doesn't necessarily believe all the words that are coming out of his own mouth. In contrast to the younger people who, like you say, are, for all we know, except for the stick in the mud, are all sort of agnostic, the older soldiers in this movie are um, skeptical mm. and bittered. I would say embittered. That's a good word. Yeah. These two embittered captains then after the big speech join each other at the bar. They're talking about the crew and all these guys that are womanizing and carousing and, and doing all their thing before they ship out to sea, but basically how young they are and how the crews have gotten younger over time. And so how eager and how wet behind the ears all of these guys are, they still believe in the Fuhrer. And that's the indication that maybe our two captains do not. The party goes a bit out of control as parties can. Uh, so much so that we get groping and dancing and spraying with seltzer and pistol fire. <laughs> did, did you notice that guy is drunk enough to be waving a pistol around and shooting it at random? And he hits his marks, uh, or that's an incredible coincidence of the parts of the painting that he hits. Yeah, he is quite the sharpshooter. He's quite the sharpshooter. Yeah, that's exactly what he is. Hits nobody else. That's strangely, you know, doesn't shoot anybody else. And thankfully, I guess. And right about then, our correspondent, uh, Werner, he's had enough. He's had enough drink. He's sick. He runs to the toilet only to find passed out on the floor. And in the first moments that I'm seeing him apparently dead or <laughs> looks like he's close to dead is Captain Thompson. But he's not. He's lying in his own vomit, but... He's alive. Yeah, he's lying in his own vomit. There's half of it hanging out of his mouth. And uh, our, our captain is there tending to him, manages to drag him to his feet. And this vomit-covered Thompson <laughs> gives this proud exclamation, I am not in the condition to f <laughs> It's regretful. I guess it's proud and regretful. And self-aware. And self-aware. And self-aware. Following the revelry scene, which that scene is one that from the first time I saw this movie, which had to have been in the you know mid-90s or something, that's one of the scenes that stuck with me. Like, I didn't remember everything, but I remembered that scene. And so uh, to see it again after, after kind of a break here was nice. When you saw it, was it the three and a half hour director's cut or was it the two and a half hour theatrical cut? It's a good question. I don't honestly remember. I was working at a video store at the time, so it was whichever one we had on the shelf. And so it may have been the director's cut. Because, well, direct, no, I take that back. Director's cut came out when? 97? 97. So this was prior to 97. So whatever that would have been, 
that's the one I saw. Um, we leave the party. We show up the next morning at the dock. Uh, strangely, no one is hungover or uh, dragging themselves around. Everybody seems relatively awake. Henrik is taking Werner towards the new boat uh, so that we can all together get a look at this new boat. Uh, looks great. It's ready to go. It's got a crew standing at attention on it, uh, waiting to go to sea. And among this crew and right there in front of the camera is who will turn out, I think for me to be, you know, one of my two or three favorite people in this entire movie. And that's the second Lieutenant played by Martin Simmelroga. He's the other red haired guy, correct? He's the, the one with the big who... smile. He's the one, yeah. he's the one that's never he... not smiling. The captain announces Werner, hey, here's this correspondent that's going to be traveling with us. Everybody, we're going to show him how, you know, what good proper Germans do on a submarine. Everybody, ha, 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 ha. And they put to sea with the appropriate fanfare and the waving and, and everybody uh, uh, playing the right music and waving the right flags. And off they go. And the one bit of non-celebration that we get is from Captain Thompson, who, who waves at them, you know, good luck. But you can tell on his face that he's worried. Yeah. And I hope you, everybody enjoyed the scenes on land because you're not going to get much more of it for a good long time. <laughs> a very long time. They head to sea. And so on board, uh, when you are a reporter, as you do, I'm going to call him Werner. Werner, yeah. is, Werner is getting a tour. Um, the second lieutenant is taking Werner on the tour through the submarine. And uh, Werner is snapping his photos the entire time of everything that's going on. So we, we're seeing where the men live and we're seeing the radio room and we're seeing the bridge and we're seeing the kitchen, which... All of these on this very cramped German U-boat are basically the same room. There's just like, <laughs> there's just kind of like, you know, a little bit of a bulkhead that separates one from the other. But from front to back, that's all you get. Yeah, I believe they said uh, it was 260 feet long. Does that sound right? There's about five or six compartments or five Maybe. or six sections. That's not big. No. During wartime, 48 people would ship out on a boat like that. Oh, man. And, uh, and they do mention in the movie that essentially it was built for 24, but people would switch off for when they slept and use the space they used. So Right. Uh, and that, and by the way, far as I am aware, that practice is still a thing of there's two or three uh, sailors who use the same bunk and it's called hot racking. And, you know, because some some people are working when other people are sleeping and, uh, you know, on battleships and submarines and whatever, and you just you swap in and out. So not the most wonderful way to spend your night in the body warmed rack of someone else, but you do what you got to do when you got limited space. And on this tour, I mean, there's a few things that happen. And one of the things that happen, I've talked about this in previous episodes of subgenre, is on submarine movies, there are certain ones that do a really good job of giving us the lay of the land. Right, We essentially get a geography lesson before we head into battle or out to sea. And this happens really well in films like, I think, uh, when we were watching uh, The Enemy Below. They do a really good version of this. When we were watching K-19, they do a really good version of this. But you take a walk, essentially, all the way through the sub from front to back or top to bottom or both and give the audience this understanding of what follows what follows what in terms of compartments. And that's the nice thing that happens here in the form of this tour to our reporter who is, is new on board. In the midst of this tour, we meet the second of kind of my two or three favorite people in this movie. Is he, I don't know if he's the chief engineer or, or what he is, but he's the guy that lives in the diesel room. And this is uh, Johan, who they call the ghost. Johan stands out. Johan stands out for a lot of reasons, not even the least of which is his smile. Like he's got this sort of crooked tooth smile. He's got wide eyes. He fits the description of the ghost. 
And maybe I should double check this, but I thought I looked up that he is actually 10 years younger than Jürgen Prochnow. Really? Yeah. Let me double check that because when you see this guy, he looks like he's the experienced old hand and he's been there forever and he's been worn down by his experience. So it seems hard to believe that he could be 30. He was born in 1951 and this movie came out in, what was it? 1981. 1981. Yeah. So yeah, he would have been 30 years old at the time. Erwin uh, Later, by the way, is this actor's name. Just to me in this film, one of the highlights. And he's also afforded more to do, I would say, than other people, which I don't want to give anything away, but... No, definitely true. And we meet him. He's definitely going to come back, but we we meet Johan. Henrik tells Werner as he's wandering around the ship and eventually ends up on the tower of the submarine, standing up and, you know, watching the land disappear behind them. He's taking pictures and leaning out and doing all these things. And the captain tells Werner, wait, you know, take pictures of everybody when we're coming back, not when we're going to sea. The reason that he gives him for not doing that is they'll all have beards by then, right? Implying, oh, everybody's going to look gruff and cool and older. This is a very young crew, so take it when they come back. I took from that also the expectation is that not all of them are going to come back. Hmm. That's interesting because I think of submarines and I think that it's an all or nothing proposition for the most part. True. That's a, that's a good point, too. I just there was something about the way he said it that I took that from it. And maybe that wasn't what he meant by it. But that's what I took from it. Um, but, you know, coming back with beards, too, it's a good reason. And and the reason he says take the pictures of them when they have beards. Uh, the reason the captain gives is it would shame the Brits to see young men giving them hell. So, uh, you know, whether that is said in jest also, I think, is left open. It's interesting, though. I took him at his word there because there's another part later in the movie where even though they're fighting the Brits, the captain shows a certain amount of respect. Actually, at several points. So while it seems strange to me that you don't want to shame your opponents, I guess it's less okay to kill younger people than it is people who have beards. But I thought it sort of fit with this general um, recognition of humanity that the captain has for his enemies. Yeah. And that is, I don't know if it's a trope necessarily, but it's it's something that feels like it shows up a number of times in not just submarine movies, but I think war movies and maybe specifically World War II movies in general is commanding officers on one side really sort of feeling this kinship with commanding officers on the other side and, and kind of deferring to them in, in some ways just because of a shared experience. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm guessing all the movies you've seen have been on the side of the allies. No, I shouldn't say on the side, from the perspective of the allies. I think a good many of them have. Not all, but a good many of them have. You are correct. Hmm. After coming down from the bridge, little cinematic time, and we end up at the officer's mess, right? And when we say officer's mess, this is not a big room. This is a single table that seats about four or five people in a cramped quarters, all right. Um, but this is the first of what will be many scenes that take place during a meal. And I noted this as we were going through the film. This is something that, whether intentional or not, I'm assuming intentional, this is a way that the director, Wolfgang Peterson, helps us mark time. Um, so this is our first meal with all of the officers together to talk about the status of who everybody is and why we're doing this. That's interesting because there are definitely parts of this movie where time was slipping for me. and I wasn't sure how long things have been passing. And... Uh... We'll get to those moments. Yeah, and I'm going to mark which meals we're at. I did make, I made, yeah, I made good Yeah, you have the whole counter going here. I got see. the counter, yeah. So at this meal, everybody's sitting around, and by everybody, it's basically the captain and the chief and the first lieutenant and the, is it the second lieutenant is there as well? Yeah. Yeah. So every, everybody's sitting around and, the and, table. And the correspondent. And the correspondent. Uh, further. And 
in the course of sitting here, all of them, except for the first lieutenant, are basically chill. You know, we're eating with our hands and we're, you know, we're a little uncouth and whatever as maybe submariners and sailors could be. Uh, the first lieutenant is ramrod stiff, fork and knife in the proper hands and, you know, eating as he should. Again, he's the stick in the mud. And uh, he's the villain in the John Hughes movies. <laughs> yeah, he's the villain in the John Hughes movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the captain starts questioning him and says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you here? And we come to find out that the first lieutenant is a German whose family had, I guess, emigrated to Mexico. They have a plantation over there. It, it seems like he comes from wealth. Um, but he has come back uh, as his duty as a proper German to fight for his country. He's a peach. He's a peach. He is He is definitely an ideologue, and he will continue to display that all the way through the film. Everybody, once he has left and gone up to the bridge, everybody's, oh, this guy's rigid and whatever. Uh, we, have, we have to deal with this asshole. But Henrik sort of pays him, I think, both a compliment and an insult that says he'll march anywhere. And interrupting the meal, interrupting the conversation, we get our first alarm, which is always the thing you want to hear when you're on a submarine. And we get the first of what are many moving shots through this submarine that we've been given a tour of in slow motion earlier from compartment to compartment. When the alarm sounds, the camera dives itself through all of these different compartments and we watch men get ready for whatever the danger is. And I think one thing that's worth pointing out is that almost all of these shots, there's one exception, are shot as if you were on board with a camera. There's no sort of CGI trickery where you're zooming through walls or swooping back and forth in a way that a physical being couldn't. So it really adds to the verisimilitude of how cramped you are and what the distances are, and it feels real. You're covering those distances, like you say, in real time. We're going from one side of the sub to the other in the time it would take to get there and having to turn and dodge and go under other <laughs> men that are running in different directions, the same as if you were a member of the crew. There's that one shot where one of the sailors falls to the ground, and I believe the camera goes over him. Yeah. And I was just wondering, was that choreographed or was that quick thinking? And it's so well done, you really can't tell. This is super excellent camera work by the cinematographer. Forgive the pronunciation again, but Yost or Jost Vacano does such a cool job here. And and this is, and we're going to talk more about him. I'm going to, I'm going to save this for conversation later. But uh, suffice to say, this was pre-Steadicam days. So everything that was done in this, no, it wasn't? Well, you're kind of right in that, I mean, Steadicam, you had it in the mid-60s with, I'm sorry, mid-70s with Bound for Glory and Rocky and right. some other pictures. However, I don't know that he actually had access to the Steadicam itself because apparently he built his own rig with two gyroscopes on it. So you get that same sort of quick moving without being herky-jerky effect. It's not Steadicam, but an incredible simulation. I stand corrected. Whatever it was that he invented was dope. That's the, <laughs> that's the, <laughs> yes, that's the yeah. thing I want to get across is it was dope and it makes dope pictures. Um, so we have this alarm. Everybody's running six ways to Sunday, trying to get to where it is that they need to be for this alarm. And once everybody is there and in a flurry of activity and a panic, we find out that it's a drill. And our poor correspondent didn't know it was a drill. And so he's sweating in, in fear that something bad was going to happen. But it was, and Captain says, you know, we're going to be doing this a lot, everybody. Get used to this. Um, and tells the chief, we tested the men. Now we're going to test the boat. Yeah, the, the captain has a real connection to the boat. 
I would say. He looks upon it in a way as much of a living entity as the people who are inhabiting it. And and the way that he's going to test this boat is that he is going to dive deeper. And so, you know, with submarine, they dive, that's fine. But he tells the chief, dive. Okay, so we're diving. All right, now we're going to dive deeper. And the chief is a little nervous about that. Well, you know, this boat is really only supposed to go to a certain depth, Captain, but okay, we'll head down there. And this gives our second lieutenant time to kind of rib our sweating correspondent about, again, another trope of submarine movies, which is discussion of, of what is referred to often as hull crush depth. I'm not sure that that's what they say in Das Boat, but basically the point under the water at which the pressure on the outside becomes greater than the pressure on the inside and the whole thing crumples like a tin can. Yeah, I don't think they use the term, but they make it very clear that once you go down a certain depth, you're taking chances. Werner is not the only one, the correspondent's not the only one that is nervous about this, right? The chief is not the only one that's nervous about this. Everybody on board, for the most part, understands you know, what the stakes are if they go too far down. But the captain seems very convinced that everything is going to be fine. And as it turns out, it is. He gets the boat down to a certain level. Nothing happens. Uh, that's too significant. The boat's going to be good at a deeper level than anyone thought would be possible. And so he says, yeah, this is great. Let's surface. It's a pretty interesting first few minutes for our correspondent on this submarine. One thing I think is interesting about this movie is that there's a bunch of situations which they are in jeopardy. And you know you're sitting down for a three and a half hour movie. Yeah. And you know that it's Das Boot. It's not Das Island, uh, <laughs> Das Shipwreck. It's Das Boot. So this is one of those times, I think, where the movie kind of plays a card like danger, excitement. But part of you sort of knows what the characters don't, that they're going to come through this okay. So you get to watch them scramble. Um I think it's a good point. I would walk that a slightly different way and say that I think as the audience, you understand that the boat is in no danger, right? That the boat is going to last all of this. I don't think you necessarily know that about every person on the crew. And I think that's what kind of makes this work a little bit. And other war movies do this as well, is that the submarine itself is going to survive. The people as individuals on it may not come out intact. And in that way, it's an awful lot like a horror movie in that at any point, somebody could go down to, you know, Michael Myers knife or a stray bolt that's going to fire from the side of the submarine. That's funny you should say that because when I was thinking about the characters in this movie and you know, I mentioned how I think the captain is really pretty well drawn but a lot of the other people less so and I thought these are summer camp counselors in a way where <laughs> you might cotton on to some of them because of how they look or what their type is but they're there again to serve the antagonist in this case they're cannon fodder but they're cannon fodder with personalities unlike some horror movies I actually like a lot of the people on here and that that's what makes potentially what's going to happen to some or all of them uh, that much worse as we go forward. We've got a lot more obviously of Das Boat to talk about but for the moment let's do a deep dive. In today's deep dive, our tangent to whatever it is we're dealing with, uh, I want to talk about the lead actor in this film, uh, Mr. Jurgen Prochno, who the reason I want to talk about him is just because he's so damn memorable. There's just a quality about him that I can't explain and I can't get over it except to say that he's just very handsome. I, I think it's more than that, actually. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Of course <laughs> it is. But the moment you see the guy, it's like, geez, that's a good looking dude. <laughs> I don't know. 
that didn't jump out at me. Although the guy does have extremely blue eyes. Uh, that's something Truth. which you don't see everywhere. Um, there's an it quality, I think, to Jurgen Prock. Now, how do you, how do I want to describe? He's, I know, he's somewhere between like a Formula One driver and a tag hewer model or whatever. Like there, there's just yeah. that kind of badass, but looks good in a suit and tie sort of quality about the man. Yeah, I don't want to say, yeah, he's all right. You know, he's a movie star. He's a good looking guy. But I think that apart from the character, the way his performance is modulated for the speed of the movie, I think really fits like a glove because it's not a demonstrative kind of performance, but the movie is often still enough and quiet enough and spends enough time with him that you can read his face. You're allowed that luxury. And again, not with everybody else, I would say, but with him, you do. And so apart from him having really the best role, I think he's afforded the best space to play in as an actor. Sure. He takes that opportunity that's given to him and really brings, I think, to each of the moments, like you said, that we're allowed to focus on him and spend time to him. He really brings to it this nice cross between intensity and humanity that it's not demonstrative. It is just right. something that that feels like it is seeping from him. And it's a very cool quality for an actor to have. And I think it's also something which, again, with this is true of a lot of the actors, but you can project onto him. He's not somebody who is so incredibly, like, use that word again, demonstrative. Right. But when he's quiet and when he's in repose, it allows you as a viewer to sort of be in his head. So you're thinking about what you would be in that situation, as well as you're watching him for clues. He draws you in. He certainly does. And his career, Das Boot, is obviously a highlight, I think, of his career. But he has done a lot of stuff and a lot of, yeah. a lot of you know, really good and really interesting stuff. And maybe some stuff that, you know, questionable, uh, questionable movies, but good performances in all of them. I mentioned earlier in the show that the reason why he is so familiar to me before I ever got to Das Boot, before I ever got to you know, watching him in The English Patient, before I ever got to any of that, there was Beverly Hills Cop 2. And I just love the man for that role because he plays the bad, he's, he's the heavy, right, in it. Um, he plays the, the companion of uh, Brigitte Nielsen in Beverly Hills Cop 2 by the name of Maxwell Dent. Now, see, this is interesting because like I said, I only saw that movie about a year ago and I was like, oh, yeah, he was in that. I think the type of villain that he plays in that, as I recall, was sort of really Alan Rickman set the standard a year later as Hans Gruber. Because when I think back now, I think, well, yeah, I remember him in a suit, you know, glowering at Eddie Murphy. And I think he picks up a gun at the end. It's something which for a guy who speaks such wonderful English, I kind of wish that he had been tried out in some better roles. Sure. No shade because you get a part in a sequel to one of the most popular movies of the <laughs> 80s. That's, you, you grab it. But I still think of him from Das Boats as yeah. opposed to this movie that I saw a year ago. I probably should have, but I, I hadn't realized too that he had been in Dune back in 84 playing uh, mm. Leto Atreides and a few other things, but just a cool dude uh, with making some cool movies and, and being an actor. <laughs> I really like it when, and this sounds sort of, sort of greedy for, but when a foreign actor comes to America, it's there's always an extra bit of excitement for me. That makes me want to see the movie because it's like, here's somebody who you already respect and like, who's 
bringing their presence in a way that they haven't been able to before. Let's not forget before we move on from Jurgen Prochno that this was not his last turn with Wolfgang Peterson. They would come back together again for Air Force One in 1997 with uh, Jurgen playing General Radek, I think that was the name of the character. And so you you get another closed space action movie that has them in it just uh, maybe not on the same level. I actually haven't seen Air Force One. Have you not? Gary Oldman's the main villain in that, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. And Prochno, is he a bad guy in that as well? It's been a minute since I have seen Air Force One, but I kind of feel like Prochno plays the general who is imprisoned, who the reason they're taking Air Force One uh, hostage is to kind of get him released, I think. Oh. If I remember correctly, that's the plot. I probably have that I, completely I, wrong, but but that to me seems like maybe that was the plot. Interestingly, Air Force One came out the same year that they wound up doing the director's cut of this movie from the same studio, Columbia. So I, I wonder how much Wolfgang Peterson sort of said, yeah, I'd love to make your movie, you know, and I'd <laughs> love to do this also. Maybe they can both happen. Maybe so. maybe they could. I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, I'm only asking questions. <laughs> I'm only asking questions. We're going to be back to ask more questions in a while. But first, let's take a break. What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife Jennifer Dassel explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best-of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast, that's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast, subscribe for season nine now. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name. Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. 
Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. That's Kabunki.com. Kabunki.com. Kabunki. That's going to leave a mark. This is Subgenre. We are talking about Das Boat with Steve Baumgartner. Thanks for being here, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. But I don't know if you know this, but apparently there's a bunch of techno remixes of the Das Boot theme. Oh, if you go to no. YouTube, <laughs> I want uh, your, your, your little theme song there made me think that maybe someday there'll be a techno remix of that as well. One can only hope. Please send those to me. Go to subgenrepodcast.com. Send all of your techno remixes of our theme song. Uh, we're back talking about the plot of this movie. Um, when we left off, we had, uh, I say we, the crew had just gone through a testing of the submarine for the first time by our captain. Crew checked out, submarine checked out, our correspondent uh, nearly had a heart attack, but made it through. We've discussed whole crush depth, and uh, now he gets a chance to get some sleep. Um, we join him waking up in his bunk and across from him meeting a sailor who will come to mean uh, much to him, I think, over the course of this movie, a young sailor by the name of Ullman. Whether or not we find that out in the movie, I don't remember, but played we by do. an actor, yeah. Martin May. That's, that's one of the people who they do identify by name, actually. And he's he's writing letters. Uh, he's spending time in his bunk writing letters to a, a French girlfriend, uh, Francois, from the flower shop that everyone seems to know uh, on a particular corner in Paris, and they have a secret. Yes, uh, she is pregnant. Well, they're going to have his baby. Well, they're engaged first. I, that's the first secret, right? I don't. I don't think anybody knows that they're engaged. That's secret. Were, were they engaged first, or are they engaged as a result? Oh, that's a good question. Um, either either way, whichever one came first, the chicken or the egg, both of them I think are secrets. He, he's a German engaged to a French girl. Okay, uh, she's pregnant. There's number two, and there's simultaneous secrets. And you know, if the it's bad news for the kid, it's bad news for the kid. If the part gets out, right? Ford gets out. It's it's not good. It's not good. And so he's got this big secret that's weighing on him. He's writing all these letters that he has no way to mail to his his girl, but he's going to write them anyway because he's in love. That's what you do. One of the things with the different versions of this movie is that the English dub does not always match the translations. Uh, if you watch the uh, subtitles on the German version, and some of the shots are even different. And I thought it was kind of interesting at one point where there are correspondence is journaling. Werner is writing letters and the other guy is journaling and it's really brief. But in the theatrical version, there's, well, in the version we saw, what he writes is something like, I'm feeling very overfed and tired mm-hmm. you know, and overwhelmed. And if you see the theatrical cut, at least as it was released here, the journal page says something like, all of the men, we all took a and smelled each other's farts. Oh, so it's written no. in English. Like they shot this just for the English version, I guess. And when I think about Ullman, I, I instantly think about <laughs> what's that doing there? And why did they have it change it from one version to the other? Great mysteries of cinema. <laughs> oh no. And we have to go, <laughs> we have to go from, we, <laughs> we have to go from that to our second meal on board. Um, <laughs> During during the second meal, our first lieutenant, uh, as he does, is properly deboning his fish. Everybody else is slurping theirs down. Uh, Captain is making sport of him and uh, telling him, look, no matter what Berlin says, Churchill is beating us. I just want you to know that. Uh, they are, you know, the, the people in Berlin are, are nothing but braggarts. And tells Werner, 
you know, you're here recording all this. Write that down. Make sure everybody heard that I said that. I think he expects that they could live. He's not just, this is not an empty thing. This is, he's just so caught up in the moments that he's willing to let it get out there. Yeah. And I think it's also a little bit of, you know, people that drive, it's sort of like uh, Maverick and Top Gun, right? Like people who fly fighter planes, people who captain or drive submarines for a living. I think there's a little bit of what, you're going to come drive the submarine? No, you can't. I, you need me here. So I can kind of say whatever I want to. I'm wondering, do you think he would say that to the people who aren't at the table with him at the time? Probably not. Yeah. that's It's the right environment to be a little loose-lipped like that because the only one there who can do anything about it is the little dweeb on the other side of the table and he's not going to do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, th this is the inner circle. That's right. But I, I do think that they could probably get an idea that he's not entirely stalwart when they play a selection from his record collection pretty soon. Exactly. And the piece that they are playing from the record collection? It's a long way to Tipperary. A long way to Tipperary, right. Which I think is a really interesting choice because I can't imagine too many armies saying, let's just sing a song from the point of view of the opposing force. And we all know the words in a foreign language, so. To be fair, it's a fun song. <laughs> it's a good song. Uh, it are you not a Tipperary fan, Steve? I'm waiting for the techno remix. There you go. That's what you should yeah. do. It's right about this time, too, that we get introduced to another character who goes by the name of Pilgrim. It's a, an actor named Jan Fetter who is talking a lot of stuff, but, you know, kind of ridiculous things, but talking about wanting to raise ducks in the bilge of the boat. Uh, we will get more of Pilgrim here in a little while, but, but that's our nice introduction to him. You recall what Pilgrim said he wanted to feed the ducks? He wanted to feed them. Was it? Big green boogers? Yes, you are on the board. That's exactly <laughs> it. The captain at that point gets a radiogram. You know, that's essentially the emergency action message, you know, from other movies. It causes him to go and check a map. There is a new course. There's a convoy that's been spotted because when you're a German U-boat, convoys are what you are attracted to, like moths to flames. And they are, for a minute, the entire crew uh, is very excited that they're going to get to go be hunters and go chase the convoy. And so you get this long moment of the captain trying to measure out. Can we get there? Can we do this? Can we do that? And ultimately, it turns out they're too far away. They can't join in the fight. And it's it's disappointing because, you know, this is what you train for. This is what you want to do when you are young and energetic and you have a, you know, have a mission. You want to be able to go put those skills to practice and they just they can't yet. So they've got to go back to boredom or back to, you know, kind of what they do. And for Werner, for the correspondent, that's taking photos. So he's going from compartment to compartment and taking photos and hey, and gets very overzealous, I think, in the torpedo room. It's essentially doing a modeling shoot, you know, turn this way and go this way and you know you work you know that he's <laughs> getting all those photos and and for his trouble ends up with an oily rag in the face yeah Werner definitely starts off as i would say as much of an odd man out on the boat as our nazi youth from mexico he's not welcome his kind is not welcome at least in that compartment the boredom though or the the back to normal uh extends beyond him and goes to others on the crew and this is where we find ourselves back in the bunks and is it is that pilgrim who is doing this i can't quite remember now but there is a character sitting in the bunks just to sort of as a demonstration of you got nothing else to do is picking his nose that is pilgrim yes i actually you know went back uh, i watched the movie a couple of times in preparation for this and that's how i made the booger connection so yeah he, he doesn't just pick his nose They've all got this level of comfort and what's the right word when you don't 
where decorum doesn't really count anymore. It's called frat house. It's, <laughs> it's a German well, word. Take, it's frat, frat house. I'll take your word on that. And the guy, we actually, he has this piece of mucus on his finger and he flicks it across the boat to the guy who he was actually speaking with in that previous scene when they were talking about mm-hmm. feeding the chickens. And that guy is pumping himself up. He's got a dumbbell and his muscular bicep is bare and the camera's really favoring it. And I can't quite place what happens with this booger. I suspect it's all pantomime and we just have to sort of imagine because I'm not sure if he, if the guy across from him gets rid of it immediately or at the end of the scene, he sort of touches his, the side of his head. <laughs> In the scene that almost immediately follows it, in between we have this moment where, hey, there's a shadow off the edge of the submarine. Could that be a boat that we could go attack? Uh, No, it isn't. The the sound fades. We can't go do that. There's this other moment of disappointment. But right after we get this sort of booger flicking uh, proposition scene, we get the second lieutenant sitting at the dinner table in the cruise mess and showing us all how to make (laughs) how to make his version of a cocktail. That's the scene that stuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he, he's a very enterprising person who knows how to use what he's got around to uh, a real true mixologist. True mixologist, because what he has, uh, they're, they're all eating lemons, right? So there's everybody's sitting around the table eating lemons to, you know, avoid the scurvy or why else are we sitting around eating all, all of us just eating lemons, I guess. But he's taking his lemons and squeezing them into a glass and into the glass, pouring the other thing he has, which is milk, which if you put milk and, and lemons together, you, you end up getting something that uh, is a curdled, awful, cottage cheesy mess in a glass, which is exactly what happens. And second lieutenant bottoms up everybody and glug, 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 takes it down like Rocky taking down some eggs. I so wish that I had those ingredients here so we could experience that for this podcast, but I I didn't think of it. I have heard of a cocktail. I've seen the videos of the cocktails like called the cement mixer or whatever, where you essentially mix those same ingredients in your mouth by two different shots and then it coagulates in your mouth and it's the most horrific thing ever. I had never actually really seen anybody do it purposefully in a glass and then take it down. It was, oh my gosh, it was terrible. But uh, the way those fluids combine, upsetting. It's very upsetting. It's very upsetting. Uh, It does not help everybody's attitudes around the table or in the sub. Uh, Nerves are frayed. The captain is, is reading the radiograms and the logs of everything they have done to that point. He's kind of not paying attention to the rest of all this nonsense. What he's paying attention to is the fact that this boat uh, has done really nothing but avoidance. It has dived to avoid this. It has turned around to avoid that. It has dived to avoid this other thing and has not fulfilled its mission in life, which is to be a hunter. And that bothers him. And so what do you think will happen? What do you think so will happen? Up. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Exactly right. Well, we, we take it back to surface, right? Boat goes back to the surface. We're, we're on here for a few more days. And th- because they get word that another U-boat, the U-32, uh, has found a convoy. So here's the catnip, right? All the, all the other U-boats that can are heading for this thing. They are going to head for it as well. The spirits are high. And they stay high until they get to kind of the general area where they should be encountering other boats or a convoy or things to do. And there's just nothing but a storm. So they're trying to figure out why that is. What's going on? You know, we are where we're supposed to be. Why is there nothing going on here? So they dive again and they do a hydrophone check and make sure that everything is working as it's supposed to work. But there is still no contact from anything and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then there is. There's this faint 
sound that's happening and the sonar operator is listening for it and the captain is leaned into the sonar operator's ear and they're both kind of listening through the headphones and hearing and the captain identifies what it is. Far away from them, there are depth charges being dropped. And if there are depth charges being dropped, that means there's another submarine over there, another U-boat. And if depth charges are being dropped on a submarine, that means there's a destroyer over there and where there are destroyers, there are convoys. And so they head directly for the noise. And this is a moment where you know, I think the movie is very careful about making sure that you're not sympathetic towards the cause of Germany. However, there is a bit of a surge you feel with, as an audience member, I think, where it's like the music starts up and the people are excited to have a purpose, to go do something. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in that. It is. And Wolfgang Peterson does this masterful job in directing this movie of combining, I think the way I've described it before and others have described it is it's this nice, what's the word I want? It's this nice dichotomy, I guess, of boredom and terror. And, <laughs> and, and, and somewhere in the middle of that is elation. And so you've got what amounts to a lot of what I imagine, you know, real wartime is like to some degree, which is just nothing to do and nothing to do and nothing to do and nothing to do, meaning no engagement with the enemy, no stuff that you have been trained for. You know, you're peeling potatoes and you're digging ditches, but none of the things that I think a younger sailor or a younger soldier would consider the glamorous part, right? Right. The and Navy commercials are not going to have people flicking boogers at each other. That's correct. Uh, not the ones I've seen. I don't, I, don't, I don't know in other markets what they play, but in my market, no, you wouldn't see that. So we have this moment of elation where they're like, oh yeah, we have a purpose. We're going to go do it. They are heading for the sounds that they hear. And as part of getting there, the diesel engines and these things, and these old U-boats, the diesel engines are working overtime and we get what is one of my favorite moments in the film uh, with one of my favorite characters which is Johan the ghost who is the operator back there has an ear trumpet right he has he has this little this little thing that he sticks into his ear that he presses up against one of the cylinders in the diesel room and I guess is able to hear you know like the microscopic things the minuscule sounds in there that tell him that make sure that that one particular cylinder is operating the way it should it's just it's a wonderful quirky character moment and I, I dig it. Yeah, and super low tech. And super low tech, which I also appreciate. I love super low tech solutions to stuff. And it's it's funny too, in this moment of sort of, you've had seriousness and crazy and, and grumpy and everything to this point. And just for me in that moment, it made me laugh out loud. It's, it's great, it's worth the price of admission. Um, he listens to it, it's fine. They speed ahead. Up ahead, the submarine spots their destroyer. There it is. It's coming right at them. Destroyers are bad news when you're a submarine. You know, you have to engage them, but, but they're bad news. And so they dive, and they dive hard. And this is a nice moment in the action sequences of this film where you do get a sense of the danger that is possible with this thing because as they are descending, it's not this neat present day submarine where the set or the boat tilts and everybody kind of leans and you descend. This is chaos because the boat tilts and every damn thing in that boat goes from, you know, the left side to the right side and just tumbles downhill. And that's people and that's machinery Ooh. and it's potatoes. Yeah, we haven't talked about that, that apparently when they would stock up these boats 
they would have months, you know, potentially months without mm-hmm. restocking. So every square inch you know, would have, we're going to shove these potatoes here. These bananas are going to hang there. This is going to be there. And uh, it's kind of like a car trip with your family uh, when you first stop and you've got all the snacks all over the place. So that's a true fact, which I had not considered before. How much space is at a premium? And apparently when a torpedo would go off, that was in a way a good thing because suddenly you had extra room. Yeah, you got you got extra room to hang more bananas. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is cool. And we talked about this sort of claustrophobia aspect of being on this sub with, you know, 40 some odd other people and whatever. And so if you think about it, like you said, every subtraction is a good one. So even if you're eating one banana, you're clearing, you know, that much extra elbow room for you in that particular compartment. So uh, yeah, that's an interesting way to think about life on a sub. Um, So they're heading for the destroyer. They got to dive. They dive really hard. All this stuff spills from one side to the other. Uh, The captain is watching through the periscope, finds that destroyer, floods the tubes and opens the torpedo doors and everybody gets ready to fire their torpedo. And just then they lose the ship. And that's not what you want to do. The destroy It's called a destroyer for a reason. You don't want to lose the destroyer. If they're out to get you, you want to have them in your sights. It would be nice to know where they are. Yeah, which they do. In a moment later, you know, they've lost it. And then another moment later, there it is. It's like right on them. And they drop depth charges immediately. And let's describe for a second, we're in the, you know, kind of latter half of this season of subgenre. And we've talked about a lot of submarine movies and we've talked about a lot of depth charges. But let me real quick just describe a depth charge so that everyone can sort of visualize what it is that these guys are running from. A depth charge is basically, if you've ever seen like a Wile E. Coyote uh, cartoon, (laughs) It's the big barrel that says TNT on the side with the little fuse, fuse, right? The fuse that goes into it that you light and you drop and it just blows itself apart, except it's doing it underwater here and it's doing it right next to your your self-contained submarine that everybody's hanging out in with the bananas and potatoes. Well said. (laughs) And so you don't want to be near them, I think is the point. And they drop them in droves. They don't just drop one. When you drop depth charges, you drop tons of them at a time. And so they're dropping depth charges and these things are floating down through the water. And it's this wonderful like snowflake rain of explosives that are coming toward this boat. And you don't know when they're going to explode. And then they do. And when they explode, the concussion on this thing is so big that it is rocking this underwater boat almost on its side with the force of everything that's going on. And with that, it's rocking all the people too. There's a lot of helplessness in this movie, I think. And these scenes are a great example of that, where it's, we don't know where they are. Oh, they're here and they're going to drop stuff on us. And hopefully they don't hit us. It's extremely tense where you're just sitting there and everybody's kind of looking around and they feel it. It's like, are there going to be more? Is it going to be worse? And um, again, we know it's a three and a half hour movie. So. Yeah, but it gets worse. In yeah. this particular sequence, it just seems to get worse. And and I think, you know, the captain really hints at that too and tells the crew, you know, after this first round of depth charges have come off and everybody's shaken. And, and we got to remember this is a young crew. They haven't gone through this before. And our correspondent has never gone through this before. The captain is really the, un, the only unshakable force here. Everybody else is a little nervous. And he tells them, now it all turns psychological, gentlemen. They've gotten you scared. Now they're just trying to essentially drive you mad. And so our job is to withstand that. Interesting, because uh, I was also curious how much the psychological aspect would be with what does the destroyer do from here? In other words, and how do you evade it? Uh, I I like your interpretation a lot better, actually. And I, I think maybe there's even a third interpretation of that, which is 
it seems to be the job of these sailors on this U-boat to sit there and take the depth charges. Yeah. That that may not be something that all of these sailors realized when they signed up to, you know, serve in this navy or serve at this particular duty is part of your job is not to run from these. Part of your job is to sit here and take it and that's a psychological mind f if you've ever heard one. That's interesting. I, that's something which I think if I were to enlist, I would have thought of beforehand, but you're right. They're really young and who knows what brought them in exactly. And so they're sitting there. Their job is to wait. They let all of the explosives explode and then they go attack, you know, if they can. In this case, they just keep coming and coming and coming. And this boat gets rattled so bad and the valves are bursting and everything that by the time they can kind of get themselves back together, the destroyer has moved on. The destroyer figures we've mucked with them enough or we figure we've gotten them and moves on. The crew is relieved, I think, maybe that they don't have to sit through this bombardment anymore, probably disappointed that, you know, they didn't get to sink it. But this is sort of the first taste of near death that this crew has gotten. I'm wondering if you're a destroyer in this case, we have no way of knowing what they're thinking. So do you simply drop depth charges until you can say, yeah, we can move on because we must have hit them? The other bit is they could be out. You know, there's only so many depth charges maybe that you carry at a certain time. They could have other things to do, you know, other boats to blow up. You never know. And we're never really given that window into what the pursuer is thinking. Yeah, although they do, of course, can track when the destroyer is moving away, I believe. Right. They so in the boat, you know where they're going. But as far as when a destroyer decides to go, you don't have control over that. You're at their mercy. Yep, absolutely. And you really can't predict how they're going to make their decision. No. And your job is, again, just to sort of sit there and to paraphrase, you know, another submarine movie to make like a hole in the water. That's your job is to sit still, be quiet and hope that they get bored and move on, which in this case may be what happened. Who knows? But the point is they move on. Um, we've had this near-death experience. We're back for another meal. It's our third meal that I can count in this movie so far in the officer's mess. This time, our correspondent, Werner, is so shaken by what has just happened that he can't eat. The rest of the table manages to eat. He can't. You can tell it's really getting to him. The captain wonders if that destroyer is still up there somewhere. Yes, they can't hear it, but, you know, it could just be floating up there with no engines running. It could still be there, and because it could still be there, they're going to run silent all night. We're going to we're going to run silent run deep as it were. And during this silent running at night, captain's doing what the captain does. He's checking the periscope. The crewmen are letting off some steam and uh, doing what crewmen do, <laughs> I guess, which is holding their own cabaret. Yeah, um, this scene was not in the theatrical cut. Uh, basically, there's a gentleman who's portraying Josephine Baker essentially yeah. and doing a Charleston while wearing oranges on a rope as breast substitutes while he gets hooted and hollered at by the other sailors. Yeah, that's as you do. Or something else. I don't know. Club sub. That's what we got right there. And all of this celebration is interrupted by one of the officers coming back and just out of his mind angry. And you think he's going to come back and say, you know, knock this nonsense off. You know, this isn't how sailors behave, which is not what he's come to do. He's come to proclaim that there is terrible news, and that terrible news is that the soccer team is not going to make the playoffs or the championship. That's enough to break up your party. That's it. <laughs> you know, they have so few amusements there that you think that guy would have been a little more judicious in stopping the fun. <laughs> You'd think so. But, you know, when, when the soccer news goes bad, that trumps everything else. For him. For him. Which we get to follow up this 
interesting portrayal of life on a submarine with a few others that are sort of quirky ground level, you know, this is what happens in an enclosed situation scenes that come up and it starts with medical exams. Now, is the guy getting the medical exam, is he the same guy who we saw wearing makeup and with his hair slicked back as Josephine Baker? It's a good question. I, I did not notice. Again, he's put in a position or he, t- he assumes the role of being the dancing te- woman for everybody else's um, lust simulation, which might have something to do with uh, the next couple scenes. Yeah, apparently on board the submarine, on board Das Boot, there is an outbreak of crabs. And this may be, uh, and not sea crabs. No, no, no. <laughs> that would be lucky. <laughs> this would be the uh, the lice from down below. Is that the way to put it? <laughs> That's certainly one way. Right. So we, yeah. we get treated as an audience to this sort of never-ending row of pantsless guys waiting to be inspected and powdered by the ship's doctor. To, they're trying to take care of uh, this outbreak that is on the boat. Uh, at the exact same time as this, the fourth meal is going on, uh, where we get an equally unappetizing moment of everybody eating pork of some sort that is mentioned that it needs to be shaved, that it still has the the hairs and the bristle on it. And while they are eating, our very uptight, upright first lieutenant has a problem. He's got uh, not only a louse of his own, but apparently it's made it all the way up to his eyebrows. I, I looked up how exactly lice is communicated, and you can get it a number of ways. Uh, sometimes proximity, sometimes intimacy, mm-hmm. which makes me kind of wonder, is the movie sort of alluding to that's happened, but doing it in a very quiet way? Again, because you've got this guy who's sort of performing as a female, as Josephine Baker, and he's the first guy to have lice. And then once we find out that he has it, a bunch of other guys all lined up to get it. I think it's also a, a weird thing that people have become so accustomed to the lack of privacy that when the doctor, the medic is doing these exams, uh, like I'm the first guy, and people are just sitting in the room and they're not even turned away. It's kind of like, what are we going to watch today? Oh, let's watch some guy get his crotch inspected for lice. And it's like, oh, we got one. And they all kind of zoom in on attention and it, and nobody cares. No. It's uh, 500 channels and nothing on. And whenever you whenever you find something that's interesting to watch, there, there, there you go. That's TV for the day. It's definitely a, a kind of brotherhood, but it's not one that I'd be especially eager to. <laughs> I think I'd be on the boat and like turning my back, yeah. you know, as opposed to being like, send in the next patient. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll mark Steve down as chair needs to face the other way when the medical <laughs> exams start. Right. Um, following then, I guess, this very uncomfortable moment for everyone involved, we have the storm uh, that had started earlier is just knocking the hell out of the boat and the ship is rocking all over the place and people and things are falling again, the potatoes and the bananas and everybody else. And there's a fight over photos of somebody's girl and our correspondent is finding himself seasick and the navigator is having a hard time keeping the boat on course because when you're getting pushed around by a storm, you are sort of drifting and uh, because they're on the surface, they're drifting even further and getting pushed around even further and that's causing them to burn fuel. So it's just this whole big situation that means that they have to dive again, which they do. Uh, in this moment or or not very long afterwards, they are standing up and I say they, it's the captain and it's Pilgrim and it's a, a couple of other people are standing up on the tower with the rain slickers on and, and really trying to figure out what's going on. And right that moment, 
a wave, I think it's an, it's an errant wave or something, rises up and hits Pilgrim and nearly knocks him overboard. And actually, now that we're at the tower, uh, we sort of alluded to this before. I find it's a bit of a shame when this movie goes onto the tower because when you're inside the submarine, it's so immersive. And when they stand up on the tower, it kind of looks like if Saturday Night Live were to do it a submarine does. sketch. Which it looks people, like somebody's throwing buckets of water in their face every couple of seconds while they're in front of a green screen. Not even a green screen, more like a rear or front projection. Uh-huh. It's They did the best they could do and I'm not dogging it. And I'm certainly not somebody who wants perfect special effects, but there is, that takes me out of the movie a little bit, where you go from a feeling of realism to something which your brain just automatically says, yeah, this is not real. This is fiction. And speaking of being taken out of the movie, uh, Jan Fetter, who plays Pilgrim, when they were shooting this scene, I think, they shot it in a, in a tank or something. They had built the uh, the tower of the, the boat in the tank, and there's somebody spraying water on them to make it feel real and everything. In the course of, of doing all of this, he actually lost his balance and toppled off of this thing and nearly almost fell off the ship. And so that moment in the movie is real. And, and like really tore himself up too, as, as if I was reading correctly, you know, broken ribs and a concussion and all of it. Yeah, that's why for the rest of the movie, they had to basically write his character as you, you come back to him as uh, injured, disabled. And he's kind of taken out of the movie there for, for a little bit. He'll he'll reappear later. He'll show back up. I think they bandaged him up and gave him a couple aspirin and pushed him in front of the camera a few times. Well, but he'll never comb his hair the same way He again. will never comb his hair the same way. Um, so they, they drag this guy below. They rescue him. He doesn't fall off the boat. They rescue Pilgrim. They take him back below. We get another meal scene. I think this is five now that I'm counting. And again, our second lieutenant and his culinary skills come into play. At first, it was the lemon juice juice and milk cocktail and this time it is green mildewy bread which everybody else is avoiding and our second lieutenant is diving right into because hey at least something green is growing on this boat i love this guy i don't know why i love this guy but i love this guy well it's during the it's during the green mildew bread moments that everybody else is sitting around this table and having this moment of dreaming of home. And they're they're looking at Chief's pictures and the pictures are his wife and they're in the snow at a cabin. And it's this sort of nice idyllic version of home. And speaking of things that sort of take you out of the movie, this was a moment where it's a nice moment for the characters, but there's this kind of like classical, like nylon string guitar music, something that's happening in the background that was, it was very soap opera. And I just I didn't even notice that. But oh. I, I, but it's funny because I actually liked how just seeing an image of solid ground is huge for these people. Werner might not know the wife, but I think that part of it is people just like seeing this is what we've left behind. And who knows when we're going to see it again. Those pictures, and I keep thinking about pictures play a large part in this movie and I think a few other sub movies that we've seen. And I just keep thinking it's a wet environment. There has to be an understanding potentially that those pictures and those things that they have brought with them are fleeting, that they'll have them for a certain period of time. And there's a there's a great chance that they'll get wet, dissolve, you know, get trampled when all the everybody and things fall from one side of the boat to the other. Although you could argue that the same argument could be made for the men themselves. True. And later, actually, I, I won't spoil it, but the chief has a line which kind of shows how psychologically tied in the men get with the mission and their purpose there as compared to their home lives. 
It is following this taste of home moment that we have in the film then that we get another moment of excitement. So we've had this sort of, you know, come down uh, a bit of comedy, bit of other things that have happened. And we get this moment of excitement because there's another sub that is spotted, right? They're not alone out here. They have found somebody else. And by gosh, if it isn't Thompson's sub, Captain Thompson, that they found of all the uh, gin joints in all the world, uh, they have ended <laughs> up in the same uh, square on a map as Thompson. And it's a good thing in that it's a buddy. It's a bad thing almost immediately for the captain for the exact same reason of there's only 12 U-boats at this point, I think he says, out in the Atlantic. And how the hell do we get two of them in the same place at the same time? That means that there's these giant holes where other ships can get through. This is not how a Navy should operate. And again, part of the movie where it's not a pro-German army of the time movie. This is just more frustration that is added to this sort of mounting pile, I guess, for a lot of different reasons for this captain and for this crew. But yeah, to have two submarines in the same place at the same time in the Atlantic, not a great thing. We're asking the, he's asking the navigator, like, okay, so where are we? Like something is wrong. We have drifted. What's going on? Navigator's like, yeah, we were in a storm and it's hard to calculate, um, but we're in this place more or less. And I think the more or less phrase sort of ignites a fire in the captain. Werner has gone to sleep. Uh, again, he awakes to another silent running. And the reason that we are at silent running then following uh, this scene where we are more or less where we are supposed to be to find this convoy, the reason that Werner awakes to a silent running is because, by Jove, they found it. Three boats on the horizon, I believe. Yep, three boats on the horizon and no escort, which is unusual, right? Big bunch of convoy. There's U-boats out there. Normally, you would have an escort. They have found a convoy with no escort. Problem is that the the moon is full, right? So you, you got to be a little careful when the moon is full. The captain asked chief, you know, hey, what do you think? Should we attack these guys or not? And there really is no other answer except, yeah, definitely. But it's this moment where Chief could have said, mm, not a good idea. Maybe we should wait. But he doesn't. He says, yeah, I think we should. Captain says, yep, I think we should too. And the hunt is on. And so they head into battle. And, you know, the moon goes behind the clouds. So they have a little bit of cover. They attack and light off three torpedoes, one at this boat and one at this boat and one at this boat. And so they have a fourth torpedo, right? There's four torpedo tubes. So they fire off one, two, and three. And the captain is kind of swiveling his binoculars from one to the second to the third and then swivels over to see the fourth one. And there's nothing there where the fourth should be. Right. And yeah. what happens when they get to the fourth position is there's a ship that they don't want to be there. And it is a coming destroyer. Straight at them. It's coming straight at them. They do have an escort. It's a destroyer. It's been hiding. And, and there it is coming right at them. What, was it actually hiding? Or were they just not looking in the right place? They may not have been looking I mean, in the right place. How do you place. hide if you don't know where a submarine is? Maybe they're just not like chilling with the big group. They're kind of off to the side and hoping maybe that the submarine isn't looking for them. I don't know. Point is, um, though, yeah. that submarine doesn't see them. And that's bad for the submarine. I'm just in awe because you have a much greater recall of the tactics that are employed uh, than I do from watching this movie. I'm just reading it off the page. <laughs> So here comes the destroyer. Destroyer is coming directly at them. Never something you want to see when you are a, a submarine who is on the surface and firing torpedoes. And so they dive. And while they are under the water, as they are diving deep to get under this destroyer, they're listening. And boom, there goes torpedo number one. It has hit a target. And boom, there goes torpedo number two. And it's hit a target. 
and the third one hits its target. So they know that the torpedoes have hit three different things. They have had some sort of success, which is great. And then they are listening to these things break apart. And they're talking about, oh, you can hear the bulkheads on this one breaking. And uh, you can hear this ship going down. And you can hear this one cracking. And someone mentions they're drowning. And you get this moment of celebration, I think, briefly turns into this moment of recognition of, of, you know, there but for the grace of God go us. You know, it should be said that these moments um, are really visceral. They are something which I, I was fortunate enough to get to see this for the first time in a theater where it's dark and you have no other focus and it's larger than life and it's loud. And shout out to theatrical experience. It makes a difference. Uh, as opposed to when you're at home and you've got your flat screen, but you've also got your junk mail on the table and your snack food to the left and maybe your cell phone. It's uh, just the visceral experience that you undergo should not be minimized here. It's not just what they do, because for me, I can't always follow everything they're doing. It happens so quickly, but you still feel rocked by what's happening. In full disclosure, I watched this on about three different screens this time around, right? So I'm watching it on a TV. I watched it on an iPad. I watched it on an old scratched up DVD. I had three different experiences with these things. And even though none of them were the theatrical experience, which I think is really the way that this movie is meant to be watched, even though that wasn't the case, the experience that I got was incredibly intense, even for watching it in those ways. Even with the snack food on my right and the cat and my son on my left and whatever, you just can't help but be drawn in by the way these scenes are done. Thinking back to when I first saw it, like, these are the scenes that I really remember. Just that feeling of being underwater, waiting, uh-oh, it's another explosion, and you're being assaulted. So basically, I guess I'm saying if you're interested in this movie, see it in the most immersive situation that you can, because it's up to it. This is the moment, too, where that intensity is driven even further home by the captain, because with that kind of ferocious intensity that he has, but that soft voice just says to the crew around him, here it comes, their revenge. And we as an audience and they as a crew are like, ah, what's coming? Okay. The destroyer drops everything everywhere and boom, 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 boom. Problem is... I guess for the destroyer, that they are dropping them at the wrong spot. And so for a minute, our submarine feels like, oh, you know, this thing that we thought was coming, we've missed it. We've dodged that bullet. They're dropping in the wrong place. And so we have gotten away from what could have been a very bad fate and, you know, quote unquote, their revenge that was coming. So the destroyer is off doing something in the wrong area. They are on our submarine dumping a bit of oil. You dump a bit of oil sometimes to the surface to make ships think that they've hit you. There is the start of this ultrasonic pinging that really is just, you know, that that echoes through the water and drives everybody a little crazy, including the sonar operator. It means that they know they're in the wrong place and they are looking for the submarine. And then those pings start getting faster and they start getting closer. And this thing that we thought we were going to avoid is coming back at us and it's coming like a freight train and there's this pace that picks up and then all of a sudden, boom, here comes the rain of depth charges again. And this time around, the depth charges have more of an effect than just rocking the boat. 
they actually start a fire back in the diesel compartment. And fire and diesel fuel are not the things that you want to have in close quarters with one another. And so even though the the guys are putting the fire out, even though it's not going to burn down the whole sub, the side effect of having a diesel fire on board a very enclosed space is that the sub is very quickly filling with smoke. That's not good. (laughs) Although I was going to say, we're not even halfway through this movie yet. So things will escalate. But on the other hand, when I'm sitting through this, I'm kind of feeling like it feels like it's false suspense in a way. Hmm. Well, again, yes and no. I think there's maybe some false suspense if you are looking at it as an audience and thinking, oh, will the captain survive or will or won't he? Or will the boat sink or won't he? Or will our correspondent die or won't he? But I did worry in these moments, I did have specific worry about some of these other characters that we've been introduced to that we have liked throughout here and whether they would make it through specific moments of this film. So I don't know if the suspense is completely, I, I don't I don't think yeah. the suspense felt completely fake to me, but I think it felt very targeted to those other people. Yeah, that see, that's just a general thing with me with this movie, that as far as an experience and a recreation, I think it's impeccable. But between how the submarine grinds the people down and sort of the fact that you're aware of that there's going to be more movie, I'm amazed that you can remember all these details because part of me is when they pass by, it's like, I know they're going to get through this and I'll just sort of let them throw stuff at me until they stop. Yeah. Much like the people in the boat with the depth charges. (laughs) Well, there's more coming, Steve. There's more coming because not only does that destroyer turn around and starts dropping a bunch more depth charges on them, which sucks when you're in the boat, but sonar picks up another signal and that is a second propeller sound which means that they have called in reinforcements. So now not only do we have one destroyer, we have at least two that are out there looking for this boat. The only choice that the captain has is to dive this boat deeper and and not just deeper, deeper, but like the deepest that he can possibly get this boat. And even that may not be enough. And so down they go. And this is where we get back to that submarine trope of hull crush depth, of how low can this boat go without imploding? And again, you know, they when they do it on Crimson Tide, everybody's going to survive this thing. But somehow there is a tension that comes along with it. And when they do it on the enemy below, there is a tension that comes with it. But you know that everybody's going to survive. And so that happens again here, too, where we're going down and we're down and we're down. And we know this sub is not going to implode. But there are specific dangers that occur, including bolts start blowing out of the walls like bullets in this thing and hitting people from the crew. And in fairness, I've sort of been vaccinated by having seen the movie already because the first time I saw it, I was definitely edge of the seat. And this this other time I'm kind of like, I, I know this won't really come to anything. So do as you will. This is the worst part of it because of all the depth charges that have been dropped and there have been a lot of all the moments of suspense and there have been a few. And even within this sequence of all the times that we've been shaken and people have been hurt and things have fallen, this moment where the second one shows up, if you could describe anything as fever pitch in this thing, this is this moment because it feels like this never ending series of explosions and things flying and we can't get our footing. And it just, it's re- it was really, you know, it gets the heart racing a little bit and it causes the most damage. And so you do have 
flooding. You do have injuries. You do have just general chaos. And all of that put together, the strain of all of that manifests itself in the character of Johan, who appears on the bridge. Johan comes out and he is uh, shutting down mentally, essentially. He can't do his job. He's not responding to the captain saying, you've got to get back in there and you've got to do something. And he's immovable. Well, I shouldn't say he's immovable because the captain goes to the back to get something. I mean, I don't think he's just walking there to blow off steam. And the other, the guy who sits next to him at the table, uh, he and a couple other guys basically bring Johan back to his post. Well, Johan uh, first, before that even goes down, Johan, you know, his eyes are already wide and he's kind of, he's kind of nutty looking, but this is that times 15. He's wide eyed. He's shaking. He's sweating. His eyes keep darting toward the hatch above them as if he's going to make a break for it and open this hatch to get out, which that would be bad. And again, we got to say trope of a submarine movie. This has happened before people going for hatches to open it, things like that. But it, it is a nice moment with him. And as he kind of makes a move for that, then yeah, the crew dives on this guy and tries to get him out of the way while captain leaves the room for a few minutes. They manage to get Johan away from this situation and back to where he's supposed to be uh, well enough before the captain can come back and we can see why he left the room and the reason he left the room is he came packing he came packing he sits down sees johan is back where he should be and then it's revealed that he has a gun presumably what he went to get uh when you mentioned before about people having certain jobs on the ship i I did sort of wonder i I guess he would just threaten johan or to sort of get him to focus because i don't think you can shoot johan I don't know. I, I mean, maybe you would shoot Johan if he goes for the hatch, I suppose. I think maybe that was the thought. Okay. Was if he opens that, we're all dead. Yeah. And so I've gone to get the gun in case he opens that. I think you're right in that you couldn't necessarily execute Johan there on the boat. Could, but you probably shouldn't. Right. He's, but if he's, it comes down to execute a vital part of the crew or everybody, you or know, everybody drowns. getting flooded because yeah. he's freaking out. I mean, don't they have childproof hatches or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, you, you have to push down before you turn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I guess you actually you couldn't have that because in case of emergency, you don't want to have some people know how to open it and some people don't. In this case, they take Johan, they get him back in a way so that he can compose himself. The captain is not forced to shoot him, but the moment leaves everybody, if they weren't already shaken, leaves them extra shaken. And we get some more depth charges and things like that. It doesn't make it any better. And at the end of all of this, our correspondent Werner just climbs into a bunk and he has taken with him the chief's picture of the snow uh, and home and all of those things that it feels like he's not going to get back to or, or be able to see again and uh, takes it with him into the bunk to cradle and really just sort of block out the world. And as he's doing it, the boat sinks. They're heading down to the bottom and it seems like maybe there is no stopping that. And we're only halfway there, folks. We're going to leave the talk of plot on Das Boat there for the moment. We're going to pick plot back up in part two in episode nine. So make sure that you tune in for that so you can hear the second half of this film and the thrilling conclusion. Uh, What I want to do, though, while we're still in this episode is take a a minute or two and let's geek out. (laughs) Awesome. Today's geek out, I think, makes some sense because we alluded to it earlier, is talking about the way this thing was directed and shot. 
because Das Boot is a film that has for its time, but also just its influence going forward on lots of other stuff, the way that the camera moved and the way that the life in this sub was portrayed by Wolfgang Peterson and by Jost Vacano and by how this film was edited, I think was pretty unique and, and still kind of has some uniqueness left on it. Well, definitely. According to the director, every scene has a bit of sort of wispy something in the air mm. uh, because, and it suggests not only that the place must smell, but also just you're aware of the air that they're breathing. This is not the hilltop of the sound of music. Oxygen is at a premium and it's kind of stale. As a, was it Gene Hackman's captain in Crimson Tide would say, I don't trust air, I can't see. <laughs> so I'm wondering, one of the really striking effects that the director and the cinematographer create is that when trouble is happening and people have flashlights, there's almost a lightsaber type of effect. I'm not sure. Can you think of an earlier movie where that kind of beams carving into the darkness? Because when I think of that, I think of, say, a David Fincher movie, which yeah. of course came later. I think of a David Fincher movie. I think of The X-Files. I, I think of that sort of thing. It really almost has a like a film noirish quality to it. Yeah. Although sometimes the colored lights, I wonder, they've got red lights and blue lights, which will come up on in times of trouble. And it looks fantastic, but it looks so fantastic that it makes me wonder, did they juice that up a little? I would doubt it, considering how much trouble they went for authenticity elsewhere. But it's very effective also. Yeah, it's very effective. And it also makes for when we do have those moving shots that the cinematographer has set up, you know, where we're moving from compartment to compartment to compartment, the fact that we do have certain compartments that are lit that way the bridge with its you know blue or red lights and then you move into engineering which always seems to be flooded in uh, you know very bright white light and other things it gives you that sense of geography as well by using some of those lighting schemes you know um we were mentioning how wolfgang peterson got a dga nomination and an academy award nomination for best director mm -hmm. And I've got to say, I really like his direction of this movie. He's in such confines, first of all. The movie is never visually boring. Yeah. That there's always something to look at. And it's a long movie. You could definitely sort of start repeating yourself. And that's not an issue here. He does a lot of great compositions also where you might have people talking in the foreground, but there'll be layers of people in the background. They're doing their own thing. It's a totally different scene, but you're totally aware of how crowded it is and how interconnected people are at all times. And that's that's fun to watch. That's There's sometimes when it's even going through the second or third time, I'd be like, oh, there's a person there too. You know, you're not necessarily seeing it, but I think you pick that up. You realize that there ain't enough room in the sub for all these people, or there's just enough room for all these people. And part of that too comes from, I think when they were shooting this thing, I, you know, it's a set, but where you could theoretically have, and I think they did maybe in the beginning for a while, you know, you remove one of the walls and kind of shoot that way. But after a while, realize that the best way to do this and the best way to give not only the audience the feeling of this claustrophobia and how everything works, but really to immerse the actors in that same feeling is we are all going to shoot together cameras, director, actors, everything. We're going to shoot together in this confined space and everybody is going to operate as if we really were on a submarine. Actually, according to the commentary, there's only one scene in this movie where he took out a wall to get the shot. And I won't spoil it because that's going to be coming up in our next episode. Oh, there you go. But most of the other time, everybody's stuck in the tube. Yeah. And that's, what is that? Method directing. If there's method acting, and this I think is method directing. If you're going to be on a submarine, be on a submarine. That's devotion for the actors, I would say. That's, uh, he mentions that when these people got their jobs, it was early on in most everybody's careers and nobody was 
pampered. So you look at this movie and these people are getting wet and are crowded and uh, art imitates life in this case, I think. And not, and, vice versa. and not seeing the sun. I think part of the thing too was keeping everybody in this contained space when we're shooting and we're shooting this thing in, we're not shooting in real time, but we're shooting it sequentially. We sort of want to feel the wear and tear as an audience on these characters and on these actors as they go through. So but what better way can you show wear and tear on a character in a movie than by really wearing and tearing on the actors who are participating in it and yeah. just putting that on film. And obviously I'm saying this won't spoil people seeing it. I think people should see it. But when they have that set on a gimbal, they're being thrown around. This is not people swaying all in no, no. sync to they are getting manhandled by the waves. The, the band-aids and salve like bill on this had to be enormous <laughs> with people flying from one end of this thing to the other. Like you said, I think Wolfgang Peterson does an extraordinary job on this in the direction. And it is a classic film because of that for a good reason. I kind of wonder, though, to me, sort of what happened with Wolfgang Peterson in future movies, because I think he still makes good movies and still makes some some really watchable movies. But that intensity, I think, that he brought to the direction of Das Boat, I have a hard time finding in some of his future work. Uh, I have to confess, I think the only other movie of his I've seen is In the Line of Fire, which I don't have much memory of. Mm -hmm. um, and unlike people a little younger than us, I never saw The NeverEnding Story, uh, <laughs> yeah. which was his follow-up to this. But I wonder if maybe part of it, the intensity is, he was afforded a really long shoot. And it seems to be a common story when a foreign director comes to America and suddenly they have more money, but also more compromises. So I wonder. No, that's true. And he did Dust Boat. Storm. Yeah, exactly. He did Dust Boat in 81. And then right. strangely, and this is something we could talk about too, but strangely follows up Dust Boat with the never ending story, but then goes on to direct other things like he did, I think it was in 85, he did Enemy Mine. And he ended up, like you said, doing In the Line of Fire. He did Outbreak. He did Air Force One. He did The Perfect Storm around 2000 and a couple of other things. So it's not like he didn't make movies that were active. He didn't make movies that had moments of intensity, you know, things like that. It just feels like, and maybe this was just age too. You know, you're youngish, maybe a little hungrier to do stuff like that when you're a little younger and, and not as much when you get older as well. You know, it's the Tarantino effect to some degree. Shots fired. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as, he also did Troy, which I haven't seen. I, I believe his last big American movie was Poseidon, the remake yeah. of the Poseidon Adventure. And I'm kind of curious about that now because we've seen how he works in nautical themes. Nautical themes of things turning upside down and falling in other directions. So if we're doing a Poseidon Adventure remake, there is potential for that. It's not like I didn't see any of the movies, uh, any of these movies because of Wolfgang Peterson, but it seems like a lot of them sort of had a lukewarm response. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, some people it's their favorites, but overall, none of these movies kind of jumped out for me personally and said, you need to see Poseidon, and, or people are saying you should see Poseidon, unlike Das Boot, when it Sorry, Das Boot, when it came out. And everybody was sort of like, oh, this is this is something. This is burning up the art house. Right. So that could be as well. He might be still doing a great job, 
but he's working with material that is more generic, perhaps. Sure. Uh, I, I don't want to slag off movies I haven't seen. And I don't want to slag off Wolfgang Peterson. The man's a oh. genius, and I wish that I could have, you know, half the talent that he displays in a lot of his movies. It's a wish more than it is a complaint. It's a wish of if Air Force One could have been Das Boat on a plane. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that sort of a thing would have been great. And I, I believe he's still working in Germany. Am I right about that? I think you're right. I think he has, and I'm, I will even look here. Uh, yeah, it looks like uh, as of 2016, at least, there was another German title. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but um, uh, yeah, still working as of 2016. Yeah. Regardless of my opinions on where Wolfgang Peterson went after Das Boot and my lack of opinions on where Jos Vacano went after Das Boot, both of them together on this film did something spectacular, and I am very glad that they did it. One thing about Joost, Joost Vacano, we're not on a first name basis, <laughs> is that he actually worked repeatedly with a foreign director who came to America and did manage to carve out a real niche, Paul Verhoeven. Oh, sure. Um, which I think is kind of interesting that uh, Paul Verhoeven is somebody who I've seen some of his movies from overseas and I've seen his American movies here. And for whatever reason, it seems like he managed to get his imprint on the domestic industry in a way that a lot of other directors don't. And that's going to do it for this first half of discussion on DOS Boat. But don't worry, you don't have to wait a whole month to hear part two. That's right, in two weeks from now, that's on Friday, October 15th, we're going to be releasing the second part, DOS Boat Part 2, uh, Season 1, Episode 9 of the Subgenre Podcast. So please make sure that you're subscribed, make sure you listen as soon as it's available, and uh, tell a friend. Steve Baumgartner. Thank you so much for uh, being here and talking about DOS Boat, for sticking around for this first half. You want to do a second half? Absolutely. I'm all in. Let's come back and do that soon, and we'll see everybody on the other side. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Steve Baumgartner. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need some more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support us with a donation and visit our website at subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. Come back soon for our last full episode of season one, the super suspenseful conclusion to DOS Boat. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.